Today's reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They were those who hear the word, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. All right, since moving to the Roaring Fork Valley a few months ago, I've been asking myself uh, this question a lot, and the question is, what kind of place is this? I mean, where have I moved? And the answer, some of the answers that I'm discovering are as wonderful as they are strange. I mean, you guys know you live in a strange place, right? We live with 40,000 other people, but not in a town, but in a long, narrow ribbon that runs down our valley. My little town on that ribbon, Basalt, has only 4,000 people, but I'm within walking distance to the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is a world leader in environmental science. A a guy I met in my neighborhood at the local sledding hill is in charge of the Beijing office from Basalt, Colorado. Small towns and global industry leaders usually don't go together, but here they do. You know what also normally doesn't go together? Uphill skiing. I mean, I'd never heard of that until I came to this place. 
people usually ski down or walk up, but here you ski up. And it's amazing. I'm in. I love it. I'm sold. A couple weeks ago on Wednesday, I went to lunch and my waitress had a handgun strapped to her belt. And the next day on Thursday for breakfast, I was overlooking the gondola in Aspen surrounded by organic food. Again, both amazing experiences, both amazing food, both in this valley, and both very different. What kind of place is this? Where have I moved? It is uh, uh, some of the questions I'm still asking. Is it politically progressive or is it conservative? Because it seems to be extremely both at the same time. And also, is Basalt the only town in America with a Whole Foods but no McDonald's? I think it might be. Everyone here, it seems, knows the beauty of creation. That's why they came. But a hanging question I have is, do they know the beauty of their creator. You see, since being here, I've not only been asking what kind of place is this, but what kind of place is this for faith? I mean, is the Roaring Fork Valley a good place to be a Christian? Does this valley encourage faith or discourage it? And, and how would we know? What, what sort of signs would we look for to answer that question? Well, interestingly enough, These are the very questions that Jesus addresses in the parable that we just heard. One of his most famous stories about a farmer and his seeds. And since these are the first parables that we've encountered in the book of Mark, as we we march through the gospel of Mark, before looking at how Jesus answers these questions, I want to talk about parables in general um, for just a minute. Because most of the way Jesus does his teaching during his ministry, was in parables. He told stories. But parables are funny things. A parable is a story, but it's actually more than a story. It's a story that's also a metaphor for our life. It's a metaphor that points to the mysterious, surprising ways that God is active and at work in our world. I mean, Jesus loved teaching in parables. He did it all the time. Almost all of his parables... Um, are about really simple, normal, everyday things. He talks about farmers planting crops, a woman cleaning her house, a traveler, a shepherd, a coin. But the fascinating thing about Jesus' parables is that their common everydayness is sort of just like the wrapping paper for these deep, mysterious, insightful claims about you and about God and about the world. I mean, we're used to encountering complex things that we can then break down into simpler sort of building blocks to learn how it works. So, for example, when it comes to music and musical talent and musical production, um, I'm basically an infant. Okay, there are like, there's not much of a difference between me musically and like an 18-month-year-old. But I do know the song, Doe, a Deer, a Female Deer, because my kids watch that movie all the time. But that song, it's literally all I know about the building blocks of music. So when I see a sheet of symphony music, if someone were to show that to me, it would look like total chaos and complexity. You know, shapes on lines, and like I I could do no discernment and no deciphering about what's going on on that sheet of music. But at the end of the day... A symphony is just made of those same building blocks of music that I already know. So in theory, 
someone could very patiently and over a very long time unpack the chaos of a symphony sheet of music and show me exactly what's going on with the building blocks. We could, we could reduce the complexity to its simpler parts. But with the guidance of a good teacher over time, I could learn to identify the simpler building blocks that I do already know. And over a very long time, that initial complexity and chaos of symphony sheet music would become more and more understandable. It would become more discernible. I mean, this is how we're trained to learn. We make the complex simple in order to understand it. But the parables of Jesus are almost the exact opposite of that. The the way that he tells these stories, the first time you encounter them, the first time you read them, you think you understand them. They seem really simple. I mean, they're about mundane, everyday things, and the point seems very clear, just on the surface for us to understand. From far off, they're easy, not complex. But the more you kick the tires on these things, and you look under the hood, and you start to read it again and ask questions about it, the more mysterious, the more insightful, and actually the more complex they get. They sort of stick with you. They're, they're a bit annoying in that way. They become harder to understand the more you break them down. They're meant to tease our minds into actively thinking about Jesus and his claims, to, to make you reconsider him in new ways. Another way I like to think about parables is they're sort of like time bombs. I mean, Jesus like tells this story, he sticks it in your mind, and then like months or years sometimes later, um, it will, it, it'll just go off, right? And there'll be this new thing like, oh my gosh, I never thought about it that way. Or like, home, oh, this story was about this the whole time. He's telling us these simple stories that eventually go off, and he gives us deeper insight into who he is and an understanding of the way he's at work in the world. So with that in mind, what's this parable about? What surprising, rich, life-changing truth does Jesus want to implant in our hearts and our minds by telling us a simple story about a farmer sowing his seeds? Well, in a word, in a phrase, what Jesus is talking about in this parable is that God is always at work in your life. All right. So we're going to look at where is God at work in the world? In the world, excuse me. How is God at work in the world? And then what is our work in God's work? So where's God at work? On our first read through this story, it feels pretty straightforward. Again, from far, from afar off, it feels simple. It feels like we know what's going on here. Uh, God has sent His word. He even explains it for us. God has sent His word into the world. His good news about Jesus. And that news lands on different people in different ways. So he gives us these four categories, these four soils of the way that people receive news about Jesus. So in the first soil, we read that, you know, some hear about Jesus, but they never take it very seriously because maybe they're distracted by everything else going on in their lives. They've had every opportunity to trust in Jesus. They've heard of him. Maybe they've been to church. Maybe they've opened the Bible. But for one reason or another, it just doesn't stick. Okay, That's soil number one. Soil number two, 
Others do take God's word seriously. They, they hear about Jesus and what he's done in the world, and it, it fires their imagination, and you see this initial growth, and they seem like they're, they're just on fire for Jesus, right? They're excited, they're in, they're growing. But when that initial thrill is over, and the reality of the grind and the perseverance of living a life following Jesus starts to set in, well, it isn't quite as appealing after that. And so for these folks in soil too, maybe they've not really surrounded themselves with the right resources and the nutrients you really need to cultivate a heart of faith. They, they don't water the seed with church or Bible study or prayer or community. And so that initial growth, it fades, right? Soil number three is much like soil number two. We see that some accept God's word. They see initial growth in their lives. But um, later, instead of the difficulty of Christianity being the thing that slows their growth, we read, or, or we, they experience what Jesus says here, that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. Now, just as a side note, if, any, uh, if anything describes trying to be a Christian in America today, it's that verse right there, okay? We are a soil three culture. This is our challenge. Soil three people are lured away by things that seem more attractive and more important than God. So like soil two, what started so well eventually fizzles. Finally, fourth, some people hear the good news about Jesus. They accept the gospel. They put their faith in him. They nourish it with all the right stuff. And over the long term, good fruit is born in their lives. They endure with Jesus. So in the first reading of this parable, um, we might say that the point is to stay focused on God, right? To, to read the Bible a lot, to pray, to put yourself in a community that will nourish the faith of the word that you heard from Jesus. In other words, go be the good soil, right? Be the, be the fourth kind of soil. Uh, don't get distracted. Don't get lured. Be the good soil. This reading is not really wrong. Uh, all of that is true. I would commend that to you. That just isn't what this story is about, okay? Um, we have probably all known different people in our lives whose lives could be described in these four ways. In fact, I bet if we're honest, we could find all four of these soils in our own hearts and in our own history as we interact with Jesus. This reading makes good enough sense. Go be the good soil. The problem is, that's not actually what it's about. Because when we take a second look at this parable, and then a third look at this parable, and we start to kick, this, kick the tires a little bit, this story starts to get annoying. All right? This story starts to get more frustrating, because it's not as simple as we thought it was when we first read it. To start... Jesus tells us the story is not about different kinds of soil. It's about a sower. It's about a farmer. Okay? First, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. The main character of this story is a farmer. The main character is not you, and it's not me. It's not really about our response to Christianity. There is only one character in this story who does anything. 
Okay? The farmer does all of the farming. The farmer does all of the action. He moves the story forward, and the soil just sort of sits there. All right? And the next thing we notice is that, and this is where it really starts to get funny, and kind of like, huh, what is going on in this story? Uh, this farmer, he is not a good farmer. Okay? This is a pretty terrible farmer. Now, a good farmer would at least know where to throw his seed so it has a good chance to grow, right? I mean, a good farmer would set up some scarecrows to get those birds out of dodge. A good farmer would trim back the thorns so they didn't choke out the very plants that he was trying to grow. I mean, I am not a farmer, trust me. I'm not a farmer nor the son of a farmer. I know nothing about farming, but I know not to throw seeds on concrete, right? You throw it in good soil. Are we saying that I am... No experience being a farmer. I'm a better farmer than God. That I know more about what to do with the seeds than God knows what to do with his seeds. I mean, three-fourths of his work is wasted, right? It's totally inefficient. It's totally wasteful. Um, He throws away at least three-fourths of what he's trying to do. Why does God work this way? What do we make of this? See, this parable, as we start to think about it, actually makes less sense the farther we go. It's wild. This is where the first glance begins to get under our skin. What we thought was simple, go be the good soil, actually turns out to be a bit more mysterious. So let me offer you another read on this thing. Uh, This is a story not really about you and me. And it's not really about um, how we respond to Christianity, though We'll see there are some implications for us. We'll get to that at the end. This is a story about God's wasteful, generous, endless, prodigal, overflowing gifts and grace that he pours out into his world. I mean, God does not have a limited supply of promise and grace and gift and gospel to to scatter in this world. Um, God brings the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, everywhere. God sends his promises of forgiveness and hope and healing and reconciliation and peace, and he scatters it everywhere. He doesn't care. Uh, He throws it on the cement and he throws it on the good soil. He just pours it out into the world. He does not hold back. He doesn't wait for deserving recipients. He doesn't ask that you clean up your plot of land before he plants his seed of Jesus in your life. Um, He doesn't make sure that you have the exact right mixture of nutrients and water content and, you know, whatever. Again, I'm not a farmer. I'm just talking up here, okay? Uh, Like, whatever you need to grow good plants. I don't know what you need to grow good plants. But whatever you need, Jesus does not make sure that you have all that stuff ready to go before he plants his seed of the gospel in your life, he just throws it out there, right? He is prodigal in his giving. And where his promises land, where his gospel lands, he is always at work. So to circle back on that first question that I've sort of been asking since I got here, what kind of place is this valley? And is this a good place? To grow in faith. I mean, is this a good place for me to bring my family? Is this a good place for us to have a church um, and to grow in faith together? Yes. This is an amazing place to grow in our love of God and to see his kingdom at work. Why? Because his kingdom's already here. 
right? He has already poured his love and his grace in this valley. It's already here. And we get to be here to witness his work in the world. You have landed in God's field. This is an amazing place to encounter him and to grow in your love for him. He will be at work in your life here. How do I know that? How can I say that with such confidence? Because he is at work everywhere. You cannot go to a place where he has not poured out his love and his kingdom. Okay, that's encouraging. That's good news. I like the thought of being in God's place. The fact that God gives his gifts indiscriminately and wastefully uh, and, and without me even needing to freshen up my plot of land and do all the weeding before he moves in, that's especially good news. But what does it even mean that God's at work here? I mean, how exactly? What should we be looking for? What are the signs of his kingdom? What are signs of his activity and his grace in this valley, in our church, and in our lives? And here again, the mystery and the depth of the parable grows on us. Because the kind of work that God is up to here, uh, the kind of work we can expect of him when we're trying to keep an eye out for him, Jesus describes here in two ways. He describes God's work as invisible and dead. Okay? Uh, Jesus says that God's, God works by sowing seeds. Now again, not a farmer, but for a seed to bring new life, what needs to happen to it? It needs to get buried it needs to disappear, it needs, needs to become invisible, and it needs to go underground into the dark. When I was reading about this parable, one theologian put it this way, this parable says that the true coming of the word of God, even if you see it, doesn't look like very much. And that when it does finally get around to doing its real work, it's so mysterious, it can't even be found at all. I mean, pretty much by definition, you and I can't see a seed doing its work. If you can see a seed doing what it's supposed to do, it's not going to work, right? That means you've taken it out of the ground and out of the dirt to look at it. By definition, a seed does its work in the dark. And the way that God is at work in the world, the way that he works in our lives, is exactly the same. He goes to work by dying to bring life. We said earlier that God the farmer has spread his gifts liberally, wastefully, around the world. Well, what is this gift that he has poured out into the world? Here's Christianity. God sent his son to fix the world. He sent Jesus into this world to fix it. To, um, to what was broken by sin and, he, and to redeem sinful people who broke it, you and me. He didn't have to do that. The fair thing would have been for him to kick back in heaven and relax and not get you know, involved in the mess that we created. But out of his grace, he comes to the world to fix it. And at great cost to himself, he does this. But he does it in a way that is totally unexpected and totally unforeseen. He doesn't fix the world by winning. He doesn't fix the world through great acts of power at least not the kind of winning and power that we tend to look for and we want to be able to chart and measure and see on a graph, a trajectory. No, um, he came as a baby, as an infant, couldn't even take care of himself, right? And he lived a life of poverty and he lived a life of obscurity 
And right when things were starting to take off, okay, he was like, you know, three years into his actual ministry that he came to earth to do, right when things were taking, starting to take off and there were crowds following him, and finally we're starting to get to all the, you know, metrics of success that we tend to look for, the winning, the power, the crowds, the influence, what happens to him? He gets convicted as a criminal and uh, executed by the Roman government, and now he's dead in a tomb below ground in the dark where no one can see him. And God says, that is exactly where I'm going to work, right? When he is buried like a seed, God, the heavenly farmer, goes to work to produce something in this world that has never been seen before and is an entirely new kind of life. God goes to work and out of it is born the fruit of resurrection life, which is a whole new kind of power in this world. Resurrection life was the fruit and the product of God's farming. And the promise of the gospel is that that same power, that same life, is available to you and available to me as we unite ourselves to Jesus in faith. We just throw our whole lives in with him. We get all the same benefits of God's farming, God's fruit in his life. And God the farmer has spread that gift of resurrection power here as well. In this church, doesn't look like much, kind of hard to see, you know, very, very small. He has sown that, that gift, that, that life, that resurrection life up and down this valley. It might be hard to see, almost in, like imperceivable, almost invisible. But the promise is God is at work here and that seed that he planted will bear fruit. A seed does not need to be seen um, to do its work, right? I mean, that's part of the beauty of it, is it just buries underground and it goes to work. And whether we see it or not, it is doing its thing. So the point of this parable is that God's seed-like, invisible resurrection power is here and it is growing. He is forgiving the sins of his people who call out in faith to him. He is adopting new children into his family. He is making promises that are astounding when you start to think about them. He is reconciling broken relationships. He is growing his people up to know him and to hear him and to love him. So what does this all mean for us? Turns out, after all, that this is a story about God, not about us, okay? So it's not about go be the good soil, Get yourself ready so that when Jesus' word falls on your plot of land, it's weeded, you got the right nutrients, and he'll be ready to grow. No, no, no. That's not what this is about. This is about God who is at work even now in your life. But I think that does have some important implications for us. How should we live in light of this news? How should, we, how should our lives be different Monday morning when we get up and go to work? Um, because we know for a fact that Jesus' resurrection life is here and active in this church and in this valley. Well, that same theologian I referenced a minute ago, his name's Capon, uh, he wrote this, The most obvious point in the whole parable is that the fullest enjoyment of the fruitfulness and the gifts of Jesus is available only to those who interfere with it the least. I love that. Those that bear fruit, it's not that they do anything. You see, it's rather that they don't do things that get in Jesus' way. It's the word and the word alone that does the work of God. 
What is our work in God's work? Basically, not to get in his way, right? Not to think we're the ones who need to do the work, but to let the word and the promises do the work. Um, In John 6, two men come up to Jesus and they ask him, what's the work of God? They're asking the very same question this parable is about. They're they're asking, how can we participate in what you're doing? We see that you're up to something. We want to be a part of it. Do you guys remember what Jesus says to these two guys? He says, here's the work of God, that you believe in the one that he's sent. It takes incredible effort and vigilance to do nothing but rest in the promises and the work of God the Father. Uh, To simply receive his gifts uh, and his kingdom through his word, through his son, Jesus Christ, this takes incredible effort um, to abide, to rest, to receive the grace of his gospel. That is, as Jesus says, the work of God. This same parable, this parable of the sower, it's in three of the Gospels, and in the Gospel of Luke, it closes with these words. It's really similar to Mark, but I really like the emphasis that Luke puts on it. So in Luke 8.15, he writes, as, the sea, as for the seed in the good soil, the fourth soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast in an honest and a good heart and bear fruit with patience. That idea of your work in the Christian life being is holding fast to the promises of God's word, that is encouraging. That gives us some direction in how to move forward. So when, as in the second soil, when the trials do pile up, right? When it does become hard to be a believer because of the cost that we will have to pay as we follow Jesus, this is calling us to hold fast to the promises of God. The resurrection life of Jesus is a certain fact. And as Paul writes in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Hold fast to that word. That is our promise from our Heavenly Father. And when the cares of this world, when we realize we really do wake up every morning in that third soil, okay? America is the third soil. And when we wake up every morning and the deceitfulness of stuff, the deceitfulness of wealth, the, the, the draw for experiences and comfort begin to lure our heart away from our relationship with Jesus. When the culture and our world whispers, that Jesus guy can't possibly be what your whole life is about, can he? I mean, it's fine to have some religion in there, but don't you also need the right spouse or the right job or the right hobbies or the right comfort or the right body or the right portfolio to make your life truly rich, when soil three begins to lure our hearts away from the promises of God, what are we called to do? To hold fast to the word of God. What does the word say? In Colossians 1, we read, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Listen to this. The firstborn of creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and earth. Do you need anything more than that? Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know what holds your life together? It's not you. You don't have to hold it all together. Jesus holds all things together. He's the head of the body, the church. 
He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, to make everything right, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You don't need anything besides that, okay? Jesus is the one who fulfills our meaning and our purpose and our hope. And what Jesus is calling us to do in this parable is to hold fast to the word of God, to cling to it, because we will be lured away by all kinds of other advice. Let's close um, with my buddy C.S. Lewis again, all right? Because it tends to be what I do. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this, There is no other way to the happiness for which we are made. Good things, as well as bad, you know, can be caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you've got to stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you've got to get into the water. If you want joy and power and peace and eternal life, you have got to get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, simply hand to anyone. They're a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, that spray will wet you. If you're not, you'll remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? The resurrection life of the kingdom of God is at work here, in you. I mean, it doesn't feel like it this morning, right? You don't like emotionally feel resurrection life all the time, but the promise of this parable is that it's here and God's at work, and that as we cling to the promises of his word, we are united to the one who brings us all the things that we deeply need in life. Hold fast with a patient heart. God is at work in your life, and he will be at work in your life through his word. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this story, this parable. Thank you that it's not nearly as simple as it initially seemed. Thank you that your main command to your people is not to go out and be a good soil, but to hold fast to your promises. Jesus, you are the one who is good. You are the one who is perfect. You are the one who is holy. And you are the one who has achieved great things for us. We ask that you help us trust you. Help us hold fast to your word with great patience. And you will bear the fruit of your kingdom in us individually and as a church. And we pray that that light shines forth to our neighbors up and down this valley. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.